Well, everyone, summer has started, and I have just the thing everyone wants: a reminder of school. Yes, this episode was recorded pre-summer, so we are talking about school. Trigger warning there for everyone. Um, but I still love this episode. This is with Jenny Odell, who is an artist who has exhibited her work all over the world. And from 2013 to 2021, she taught digital art at Stanford University. Her book, which we will be discussing today, is called "How to Do Nothing: Resisting the Attention Economy." It is a New York Times best-selling book, and it was named one of the best books of the year in 2019. I enjoyed this episode because we talked about something that I think is often skipped over in media.、Um, it's basically that not everything that is useful is productive in a monetary sense. So not everything that is good to do actually gives you money. And with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please don't forget to rate the podcast and share it with your friends. Also, follow Aiming for the Moon at Aiming the Number Four Moon on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, with that, enjoy the show and welcome Miss Jenny Odell. Well, thanks so much for coming on the interview, Miss Odell. It's great to have you here. So today you're an、um, you're an artist. You've you work in California. Your stuff has been shown all over the world.、Um, you worked at Stanford as a digital art professor. It's you have a very interesting career. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And today we'll be talking about your 2019 book, How to Do Nothing. Let me pull up the subtitle of that: "Resisting the Attention Economy." And something that I found really interesting about this—one of the reasons I wanted to have you on—was because as a student, I find my life very busy with doing things that other people want me to do. So it seems like as a student, that's kind of your job description: do things in order to prepare for the future. How, like, one of the things I've been struggling with is how to create when all of this stuff is due and everyone's kind of looking for your time. Do you have any advice for students in that? Like, how would you approach someone who's a really busy schedule like that? Yeah, yeah, and I, that's something I very much sympathize with from having taught college students for for eight years, and I would sort of see them in that that position.、Um, I guess it kind of has two sides, right? Like, there's things that you can maybe do as an individual, and then I think it's also important to recognize that there are limits to that, right? Like, the fact that your schedule is busy, like maybe. Out of your control to some degree. I mean, maybe it isn't, but maybe it is, right? Like,、um, it does seem to me like schools have been sort of demanding more of students and giving them less off time. And in th- in that sort of case, like I think, like you as an individual can try to sort of make the space that you can, but ultimately you would have to, if you really wanted to change that, you would have to do things like. I don't know. Get together with other students and maybe like try to talk to someone about it, right? Or like try to talk to the school administration, right? So I just I would just point out that there's like whenever I sort of give advice about、um, what, sort of what you can do, I feel like it's really important to make this caveat that there's a certain limit to that, and you would have to move to some sort of like collective action or or something or just address something structural. But I mean, I'm thinking about like my high school experience, and I also remember being very busy. 
but I tried to spend some time um, just like a sort of alone with my thoughts. Um, not a lot of time, but just enough to remember what it was that I wanted to do. Cause I feel like that's the risk, right? If you're like so busy all the time and you're not giving yourself the ability to pause, um, you can get caught up, right? Like you can, especially with something like great. That's what I remember is like, I, I would forget that there's more to life than grades, for example, yeah, or yeah. That like grades are supposed to reflect something about learning, you know? Um, and whenever I would kind of like pull back for, you know, even just like a short little break, I would kind of like regroup and like write in a journal or something like that, or just sort of think and, that would really like, I still do that, right? Like I still, <laughs> as an adult, I have to do that. And I feel like that's kind of the precursor to all of the other things, because that's where you can kind of, kind of come back to yourself. And, um, and I say alone, you know, you could also talk to a friend about it, right? Like you probably, your friends are also really burned out. So maybe you talk to them about like, what is it that we really value and what do we want to do with our time? Um, and just try to make that a regular practice because you're always going to forget. <laughs> Something, another concept that I found very interesting when looking over your book and preparing for this interview was your idea that social media gives us brands for ourselves and that it makes us one dimensional. Um, and I find that very interesting and impactful for myself as my generation, obviously, we're kind of the generation of social media and of the internet. Um, and it was, it's interesting there's this idea that when you're going to college, when you're applying for college, you want to build your brand so that the college administrators know what what they're getting when you sign up or whatever. And it's it's an interesting kind of concept. You kind of argue against this. Is this a good thing that we have our brands on social media? Like, could you talk about that? Yeah, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with um, presenting yourself a certain way. I think the in a certain context, right? But I, I think the problem arises when maybe you you come to identify too much with, with one of those self-presentations, right? Like the truth is, um, you know, already as a student, but, you know, ongoing throughout your life, like you will take on and inhabit many roles um, oftentimes simultaneously, right? Like, um, you know, you have, you'll have your job, then you'll have maybe you're like your partner or like your friends and maybe you're like a volunteer, right? Like there's all these different um, arenas in which like you kind of show up in a different way. And social media is one of those, but it's just one. And I think it, there's something about, you know, the way social media is designed. It's very um, addictive and it's just really absorbing, right? Cause like the people, you know, are there, like if you spend a lot of time there, I think that those other roles can kind of like shrink from v- from view you can kind of forget about them or you kind of stop investing in them as much. And I feel like the sign of this just from personal experience is like when you start to take things in that arena, like social media as almost like life or death, they start to seem really important, right? Like that's a sign that maybe you need to step back a little bit and maybe spend more time thinking about those other parts of your life, other parts of your identity, right? Because I think like the ideal is that you would you would have kind of like a healthy balance of these different roles. So it's not like, you know, I'm not one of those people who's sort of like, oh, you know, social media is like evil, like inherently in and of itself, right? Like, I think it's really important, especially during the pandemic, like people needed to be connected to each other, right? You want to know what's going on with other people, but it it is that issue of balance. And like I said, the design of social media makes it difficult to maintain that balance for a lot of people, I think. 
It's interesting. It seems like you're arguing for a prism of yourself, if that makes sense. So you have different angles of yourself that different people see. So you have the student part of yourself, you have the online part of yourself, you have with different friends and with different members of your community, you're not faking yourself. You just have a different side that you show more. Is that, am I understanding yeah. your idea correctly? Yeah, yeah. And and um, it's funny, I'm actually reading a book right now. It's sort of like a, a philosophy book that's talking about this idea of roles because there is, you know, it's, it's tempting to want to say, right. When someone's playing a role, like they're being fake, right. Like that's not their real self. And and this book that I'm reading is sort of arguing that there's, there is nothing fake about that sort of prism, right. Like everyone is like, we, we live in a society in which we form our identities and that is just kind of the human condition. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but like the ideal situation would be that not only do you have this balance but you're also kind of self-aware in that. So you're sort of like, I know that I am playing this role right now. Like, am I relating to it in a meaningful way? And then I'm going to move over and do this other thing. I mean, I think about this a lot because I, you know, I'm a, mostly a writer right now and uh, writing is a very isol- isolating experience and it's very intense. And um, just yesterday, I, I spent most of the day like reading this really intense book. And then I was like, kind of researching and I was really in that sort of role, right? Which I love. It's it's very absorbing. Um and then, you know, my boyfriend and I went to meet some friends for drinks and these are friends who are not from, you know, the writing community. They're it's like a totally different context, right? Um and like a lot of them uh, you know, have had babies recently, which I like I don't have a kid, you know, so there's a lot of differences there, right? But it was just like really good to hang out with them and just be like kind of that other person. And then I found that I was like really refreshed and then like coming back to my work. Right. So there's like this kind of interesting relationship or sort of back and forth. And I think it's also really important to remember that like those things are also going to evolve, right? Like you will evolve through and across like different roles. Like you're never, it's funny, like there's been so many times in my life, especially when I was in high school, where I kind of thought like, this is it this is, <laughs> this is who I am. Right. I guess it's all over. Like, and I just kind of thought like the rest of my life was going to play itself out. Like this has happened multiple times and it's just, you, you just don't know who you're going to become. And like, I, I find that exciting. Yeah, it is. It's, it's like this journey of life. Like you're almost on a road trip and each stop you're kind of changing just a little bit. It's, it's really interesting. Now going to like the title of your book, how to do nothing. Everyone's wondering, well, how do you do nothing and why should we do nothing? Because it has this bad connotation like <laughs> if you're doing nothing, you're unproductive. Um, like it's almost seen as procrastination or something like that. Right, so right. how would you explain to people what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think probably a good explanation or, or example would be something that I talk about at the very beginning of the book. And the reason it has flowers on the cover is that um, I talk about going to um, sort of city rose garden that's five minutes away from me. So, um, so I live in Oakland. I'm like in the city, right? But there's this, this garden is kind of like a little enclave. It feels very peaceful, even though it's kind of in the middle of everything. And after the 2016 election, I started going there a lot. Um, I had the privilege to do that because I, I was teaching at the time. And so I was only having to commute twice a week. Um, so I was spending a lot of time there and I was doing what looked like nothing even to me, right. I'm, I thought, oh, I'm just going to the Rose Garden. I'm doing nothing. (laughs) I should be doing something, especially at that time. You know, it was like, there was this sense of like alarm among a lot of people that I knew, like we need to do something. Um, plus just sort of workaholism. And so sitting there really felt 
um, sort of counterintuitive, but I was, but I also felt that I needed to do it. So, um, you know, only after I had done that for a long time and, you know, developed it into an essay and then, you know, which became the book, did I kind of figure out what I actually was doing there, which, you know, depends on when you say nothing, which uh, context you're referring to. So if, like from the perspective of all time is money, you always need to have something to show for your time. You always need to have some sort of output um, and you need to be on this kind of line of progress that's going in one direction. Yes, that is nothing. But from the perspective of a, a human being who has, you know, emotions and needs to to mourn and process and, um, you know, sort of associate and dream and like all of these kind of less linear forms of thinking and doing, it's it's not nothing. It's the opposite of nothing. It's like everything, right? So, um, so I think like that's a, an example. And I mean, it's it's hard because in this culture it's hard to talk about that without it still getting collapsed into productivity. Like you'll often see things like daydreaming is good for productivity, right? Like even my book, it's talked about that way. Like read this book so you can be more productive. And I I say in the book, like, this is not about being more productive. It's about questioning what we consider to be productive in the first place. Like, you know, why do we not consider things like um, maintenance, care, um, like caretaking, um, productive, right? I think that changed a little bit during the pandemic because we were thinking more about essential work. But but at that time, it was very much like productivity and quote unquote, doing something looked a very particular way. And if you deviated from it, it was seen as doing nothing, which as you mentioned, is seen negatively. <laughs> yeah, it, It's interesting. It seems it's less of arguing doing nothing. It's more of arguing that, hey, being a human is more than just your output, your economic output, which I thought was really interesting because obviously the self-help books, they always kind of skim over that aspect. As you mentioned, it's like daydreaming, good for productivity, sleeping, good for productivity. They never mention like the social life, good for productivity. It's like, okay, well, yeah, but I kind of have a soul too. Like a, a machine could also kind of do this job. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, totally. it's kind of interesting. Um, and I, I thought that was a very um, fascinating aspect of your book. And it kind of enlightened me in that area. I found that very interesting. Yeah, that's so great to hear. Yeah. So something that I thought was also interesting is you talk about creating art in a society that values economic output all the time. Could you kind of talk to that about that and explain that to your audience and to my audience? Yeah. Um, so I have kind of a specific perspective on it because I was teaching digital art um, at Stanford, which is a school that, you know, not, not that the the arts are not considered important there, but obviously there's a sort of air of uh, an intense air of performance, right? Like performing well, right? Like many schools. Um, and so I, I typically had students who were coming from outside of the humanities. So these would be like engineering students, like uh, product design, and they were taking the class more or less like as a breadth requirement. So it's it it's sort of required to round out what you're studying. So it's not their main focus. Um, some of them were not familiar with making art, not super familiar with art history um, because they wouldn't have needed to be. And so <clears throat> we're on the quarter system. So I basically had 10 weeks to um, articulate the importance of you know, things like conceptual art that really looks like doing nothing, right? Um, and just these kind of less obviously useful. Uh, again, I use that word in the sort of narrow sense, um, activities, and then trying to, you know, get the students to do those kinds of things. And 
Uh, and, and it was, again, really hard for me to do that without saying to them, like, if you do these things, you will be more well-rounded and you'll get a better job, right? Like, I always had to sort of uh, be careful about saying that. Um, but I think, actually, if you frame art as simply um, something that can help you with, with different ways of seeing, that's pretty intuitive to most people, like, whether they're in the arts or humanities or not, right? Like I always compare it to a magnifying glass, like either a magnifying glass or binoculars, which I, I carry both a 10X lens with me and binoculars all the time when I go out. Um, and it's like, both of those things just give you more or different access to the world that is already there that you thought you were familiar with, but there's often an element of surprise and kind of being defamiliarized for a moment that's um, that a lot of us, I think, associate with childhood, like early childhood, when everything was like that. And when that was encouraged, right? It's sort of no longer encouraged when you're an adult. So um, that's something that I feel like most people, even if they're stuck in that kind of really utilitarian, like I need to, you know, get the most out of my time. Most people, I think, can relate to the idea that, you know, you kind of only get one life and that the world is actually actually quite strange. And like, wouldn't you want to have more access to it? And like that, I feel like my students were able to kind of grasp onto that. I mean, you're literally changing your perspective when you look through a magnifying glass or binoculars. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, I guess part of living life is not just the productive side, uh, but the productive side also feeds into being able to take these moments of reflection. Um, I find it, it's very interesting how in a previous episode that I actually just recorded, we were talking about how there's truth throughout the entire world. So there's it in art, in tech, in math, and it's a very interesting concept. And you won't be able to identify that if you don't sit down and notice things, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I find this entire concept fascinating. <laughs> well, wrapping up. Um, the interview, I wanted to ask our last two questions, which are the first one is what books have had an impact on you? Um, okay. So I know that the first one that like immediately comes to mind is braiding sweetgrass, which I've referenced in how to do nothing. Um, and that is such a pleasure to read. It's, it's kind of one of those rare books that is very rigorous. Like it's, you learn so much from it, but it's also, um, it's not, it's so lyrical and it's, and poetic that it's also just, like I said, it's pleasurable to read. So you kind of get both, which I, I feel like that's very rare for me. Um, and that's written by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. So she's trying to combine sort of her indigenous background and understanding of ecology, um, and sort of life in general with her training as a, a plant scientist. And so it's really this, and it's called braiding sweetgrass. You know, she talks about what that means um, specifically, but also the whole book itself is kind of braiding together these strands. It's so beautiful. Um, I I return to it often, and it was very huge for me in writing How to Do Nothing. Um, I'm trying to think what else. It's hard because I read a lot of books uh, to think of like a specific one. I mean, I will say just, you know, thinking, I'm sure maybe this has come up already, but like um, I'm thinking about my high school self like uh, letters, letters to a young poet, uh, the Rilke book. Um, that was very huge for me, um, both in high school and, and a little bit after that in terms of developing that sense of um, what I was mentioning earlier with like interiority, like a conversation with oneself um, that you can return to and sort of have the space of reflection. Like I was already interested in that in high school. And I remember 
uh, I heard that book on audio tape in uh, my friend's parents' car, and it was blasting because we were on, we were like driving on a highway that was very hot, and the car's air conditioning was broken. So it was just like being yelled at me. Um, so it really made an impression. <laughs> um, but I I know that that's like one of the most recommended books ever. But if there's anyone out there who is like on the fence and doesn't believe the hype, Letters to a Young Poet, it's, it's great. I'm definitely going to have to check it out. I haven't, weirdly enough, it hasn't been recommended on this podcast yet. Oh, I'm really? Surprised. Okay, I feel better about that then. Yeah, <laughs> it's so it's so good because it's, and I like so many people that, that you talk to who who have read it usually have read it many times. I've read it many times. It's, it's quite short. Um, and you'll always get something different out of it. Like over the years, you come back to it, it'll read completely differently. So, um, and it's nice because it's addressed to a young person who's trying to do something, right? So it's kind of natural for that. That's really cool. And our last question is, what advice do you have for teenagers? Um, so I think my... Okay, so this is very like based on me, but my advice would be to keep a journal, which I know probably some of your listeners probably already do. I also should acknowledge that like I think that there are probably people who would hate keeping a journal and that there are probably other ways of doing what having a journal does for me. But um I kept a journal I've kept a journal my entire life, like since I was in elementary school. <laughs> and um I I'm old enough now that I, when I look back and reflect on it, I realize how important it was. And um, I think it's really important to develop self-knowledge and a relationship, a friendly relationship with yourself, a friendly, non non-judgmental space. Right. And when you write in a journal, you're sort of implicitly addressing your future self. I, it took me a while to realize that's what I was doing. Right. But it's like, who are you writing to in a journal? You're, you're writing to the reader. The reader is you in the future. And it allows you to say like, um, to be honest and just say, you know, like today was really terrible. Here's what happened. Like, this is how I feel about it. And you don't need to come to a conclusion. It's not an essay, you know, it's not being graded and it doesn't have to be good. Like it doesn't have to sound good. And not only I, does that serve you in the moment, cause you have a place to be honest and then kind of look over and see what you said, you know, five years later, you'll go back and read that and you will understand so much about how you came to the place where you are. And like, I think you can get through life without that probably, but it's hard for me to imagine um, not having it. And it's just been such a big part of my kind of formation of my identity. And it feels like such a gift to yourself in the future. Like I can go back and read, you know, <laughs> I, can, I literally have journals from when I was like 17. I grew up in the suburbs and I was like, yeah, I just like drove around and went to Starbucks and I'm so bored, you know, like <laughs> I still could like go back and read that. but. Uh, and you will also be surprised when you get older how wise you already are. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I also keep a journal, and there's just something about it that's very fulfilling in a weird way. Like yeah. you get to sit down and stop and think and just reflect on your day. And there's something about at least for me getting it out of my head mm -hmm. um, and putting it on that page and like, okay. It's done. I don't have to think about it anymore. If I need it, mm -hmm. I can go back to it. There's, I don't know. There's something, I'm not sure what it is exactly, but there's just something very relaxing about it. Yeah. I think it's similar to like when you get something off your chest, right? Or you tell a friend. So I was going to say, if, if if someone doesn't want a journal, I think like having a sort of heart to heart with a friend kind of does a really similar thing. 
but it's just this kind of airing, right. Of, of something that is maybe kind of taking up space in your head. And it just like, I, I think it's, it's really important to develop not only self-knowledge, but self-compassion. And that's kind of what it does, right? It's like, it puts you in the position of asking yourself like, oh, how are you feeling? Instead of like, I need to do this or like, I should be like this, you know? So just kind of, just by the act of sitting down and, and writing, you kind of get into that position. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was really interesting. Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll have all the books mentioned in this episode linked to Aiming for the Moon's Amazon affiliate page. If you buy the books through that link, not only do you get a great read, but you can also help support the show. So that's awesome. And if you've liked what you've heard today, rate the show. That really helps with the algorithm. And if you'd like to stay updated and get notified when new episodes release, hit that subscribe button and share it if you have time and you're interested in that. Follow us at aiming the number four moon on Instagram and Twitter. And you can check out all of my other meanderings at taylorgbledsoe.com. So with all of those plugs, don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon. Thanks for listening, guys.